John chapter 19, verse 17. Now we move into the physical crucifixion of Christ and his final words. Verse 17 says, They took Jesus, therefore, and went up, and he went up bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him. With him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, This was to fulfill the scriptures. They did not divide my outer garment among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Calliopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw then his mother and the disciple whom he loved nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own house. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of a hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You may be seated. Father, we pray now that you would store in our hearts, you would lift the words of scripture off the pages to us. We need your spirit to do that. We need to see this more than just a story. None of us, none of us would not be here, Lord, if it were not for those last words. It is finished. So Lord, store our hearts today. May we put life into perspective through this passage. We thank you, Jesus, that you unwaveringly accomplished the goal. Now may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the middle of John 19, as you see. There was one more passage before the empty tomb of John 20. I will preach that passage on Friday night at our Good Friday service. It, too, is a very stirring passage. It is the burial of Christ. And often we do look at the crucifixion of Christ, and we look at the resurrection, but the burial of Christ is extremely important to our theology. And I promise you will be challenged on Friday night and encouraged and humbled as we look at the body of Christ buried. But this morning, we want to turn our attention to this text. 
And it's fascinating, set on today's events. If you look back 2,000 years ago, Jesus is coming around this time. He's coming into Jerusalem. We read from that text this morning out of Matthew chapter 21 that the crowds gathered. They gathered and they began to worship him and call out this Old Testament truth. This Hosanna, this glory, present this one glorious. He is the son of David. And that's extremely important to to get. If you were here last week, our dear friend Tony Arntz preached, and he preached on David. And as he brought us through David's sin and the gravity of sin and the magnitude of sin and the deserving of death that sin needs, David needed someone to forgive him. And when we get to the cross, it's an amazing understanding. It helps your your Bible get a little smaller when you get to the cross. As you find the cross, you find the Lord Jesus Christ dying, completing all things, the Bible says here in our text, we'll look at that in a few minutes, completing all these things, and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, washes all the way back to Adam, and it washes all the way forward to the last person who will call on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. It is absolutely, completely sufficient. And so the son of David, as they cry out on this Palm Sunday time, that is the one who washes back to cover the sins of his father David a thousand years earlier. So David needed his son, the glorious son of God, the one came in the line of David, called the son of David. He needed him to die. Now, I don't think they understood that the morning he rode in on a donkey. They, like most people, just want power. Get these Romans out of our life. This is the king. Let's anoint him. Let's get this done. And Jesus receives it. I, I, I really, truly believe it's a, it's a foreshadowing to come when all of the world will bow the knee and cry out to him. He will be the Lord of lords, the King of kings. That all will happen. But that song just sums it up, this unwavering plan. It was false worship to an extent, wasn't it? They didn't know why he was there. And I think most people who come to church on Easter, and by the way, if you invite somebody to church on Easter, nine out of ten, ten times they'll come. So I... Please invite somebody. They'll come. But most people come and they see Easter and they, they just don't get it. They, they don't know why this is such an important thing. And, but to us, it's everything. It's the death and burial and the resurrection of Christ is, is what we have. This is, this is what completes us. This is what brings us to the Father. And so it is such a massively beautiful time for us. But then you get to this text. And it's staggering. I want to point out to you just a few things. Look down through it. I'm just, I want you, if you don't mind marking your Bible, I mark my Bible all up. Um, but let me just give you a couple of phrases as we go down here that I really want you to key on. I'll, I'll bring them out of my points as we work down through this passage. Verse 17, it says in the middle of the verse, bearing his own cross. You should mark that. That's a very important point. John is, John is writing this years later after the other gospels account. He's he is bringing certain things out. He's not just bringing knowledge or, or just a history of events. He's, he's playing on spiritual issues that he wants us to grab. 
So bearing his cross, verse 18, they crucified him. We want to take a minute of that and look at that, certainly. Verse 21, the king of the Jews. That should be underlined in your Bible. He's king. Verse 24, this was to fulfill the scriptures. Extremely important. We want to look at that. Verse 27, behold your mother. I've unlearned the complete verse in 28. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures. Knowing all things. What an amazing verse. And then finally, these should be highlighted. Verse 30, it is finished. Let's look at some thoughts and bring out those verses. The cross that only Jesus could bear. Verse 17 says in Jesus, they took Jesus and therefore he went out bearing his own cross. Bearing his own cross to a place called a skull. Pretty appropriate. Two men were with him on that journey. But the Bible doesn't, John doesn't bring them out that they're bearing their cross. He is bearing his own cross going. The other gospels account, if you read them, record that along the journey he became so weak that they summoned Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd. He most likely was a a different skin colored man. They quickly looked at him and said, let's just get him. Early accounts of the church tell us that he's the father of several boys. One is Rufus, goes on to be an elder in the church in Rome. This impacted his life greatly. But John doesn't doesn't focus on some of the other facts that happen along the way. Because I believe John is trying to emphasize that Jesus will accomplish salvation for men and he will do it alone. And I think that's why he brings that kind of truth out in this passage. Nobody else says this, bearing his own cross. No no other writer is recorded. And what an important truth. Who else could bear the cross of Jesus? Who else could hang on that and say, I'm worthy to die for somebody else's sins? See, nobody can do that. You could nail 100,000 pastors, the most righteous person you know, and he could never bear the cross that Jesus bore. The picture is all through the scriptures. Do you remember in Genesis 22? You remember Abraham and Isaac? Remember him going up the hill? Abraham took the wood in verse six in the burnt offering and he laid it on his son. Carry the wood you're gonna be sacrificed on. Don't tell me Christ, the picture of Christ is not taught all through the scriptures. Here, son, you're gonna be sacrificed, so carry your own wood. <laughs> I love that. He took it and he goes along and you know the story and the Lord Provides a lamb, a male ram, unblemished, caught in thorns by just his horns, a crown around him, and he becomes that slaughtered one for Isaac and for Abraham. And the shift of Christ, the picture of the type of Christ shifts from Isaac to that lamb. The father sacrificing his own son, what a beautiful reminder. And here, this little phrase, it's just, when I read this, and particularly in the original language, it just jumped out. I said, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's it. John's trying to tell us, look, no one can bear this. Only Jesus can bear his cross. But don't think that Jesus is some helpless person here. Stories depict him so often um, record um, gruesome views of him 
And I don't doubt that it was a bloody, gruesome scene. But you're gonna notice in here, John doesn't pull that out. Neither of the gospels do. None of them do. You understand Jesus the more you read this that he's in absolute control. Look at John 10 with me, because he's told us this is gonna happen. And he knows what he's doing. And though man thinks he has the upper hand on what's happening, Jesus himself is in full control of all of these things. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Even as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my sheep, my life for the sheep. Verse 15, he says it again, see that? Verse 11, verse 15, even as the father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's voluntary. It's, it, he's in control of this. Verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And then look at chapter 15, verse 13. Getting very close to the cross, the final week, final days, even the night before here, speaking to his disciples, John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends. What a remarkable personal thing. So as you look at John 19, verse 17, and he bore, bore his cross alone, you begin to realize this is, he's, he's bearing this cross for his friends. He's doing something that we, his friends, cannot do. You cannot, you cannot do this. You cannot bear your own cross for the recovery of righteousness, for the gaining of, of perfection that we have in Christ. He's doing it for his friends. Bible says here that they took him to a place called the skull, Hebrew, Golgotha. Well, it's interesting, the word, and you may know this, but maybe you don't, because we sing about Calvary all the time. Well, that's, that's the Latin of this place. That's what it's called, Calvary. And, and that's where he shows up, and, and they take him, and basically, if you understand this, it's outside the city. It's outside the city, and this is where they took people to stone them. Many times when you would study the life of Christ, they tried to drive him outside the city so they could do what? So they kill him. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to understand this point. It's all part of fulfilling the entire word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 and 12 talking about the bodies, the animals of the sacrifices for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest, verse 11 here, as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Hmm. The, blood goes into the, go, the blood goes to the holy of holies, goes to right before God, it's brought before God, that's where the blood goes. Verse 12. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own body suffered outside the gate. In essence, what the writer of Hebrews is reminding us is that the blood of Christ came right before God himself. Said, here it is, the blood of Christ to cover you and I, to cover our sins. But Christ suffered outside, just like the picture that was laid for thousands of years before. So he wasn't crucified in downtown Jerusalem. He suffered outside the gates. 
Look at verse 18 back in our text, in John 19, 18. It says they crucified him. And with him were two men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Though other religions focus very highly on the physical suffering of Jesus, the gospels don't. It's just real apparent. I mean, there's times where it says they scourged him, didn't tell you about what that looked like. We have to study to find out what that looked like. The gospels don't focus intently on the suffering. What the gospel writers were concerned with as God moved them along by his spirit, they were concerned with the death of Jesus for sinners. That's what they're concerned for. That's what they want you to understand. They make no attempt to play on the heartstrings, and we must not either. We don't have a crucifix with a savior hanging on it. He's not there. There is a purpose for the cross. It is to remind us. And just think about this. Two other men crucified with Jesus, the text says. I wrote in my notes this. I said, one a savior of sinners, one a sinner about to be saved, and one a sinner about to be damned. What an amazing picture. One a savior of the world. To all that will come through him to get to the father, all that will look to him as their only hope. One who in the last moments of his life turns to him and says, We've, we're getting what we deserve. You're innocent. Will you remember me? I can't get to the Father except through you. And the other one that mocks only wants Jesus to get him off the cross. So it was such a picture of today, isn't it? Jesus is used for so many things other than what he meant to do to come to save sinners. And yet John reminds us, look, there's three of them hanging there. John 8, 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, Yahweh, you will die in your sins. No one can forgive sins but God, the Pharisee said to Jesus. He said, you're right. Not only are your sins forgiven, take up your mat and walk. See, he was fully God as he hung on the cross there. And one man looks to him and says, I believe. I believe in who you said you are. I believe you're innocent. You are free from sin. Will you get me to paradise? Will you bring me into heaven? And Jesus faithfully does. Jesus was with sinners till he died. Isn't that interesting? He didn't revoke himself away from sinners. He was always with sinners. He dies with sinners. That's our Lord. That's why nobody else can bear this cross. It is our Lord that does that. Second thought, the crucifixion of the king. The crucifixion of the king, verses 19 through 22 This is an amazing statement here. This inscription is put up above Jesus. This is not not uncommon. This was the condemnation of this man. They would do it above, also above the men that hung about him. They were thieves, murderers, whatever it was that would be there. But Pilate chose, at least he thinks he chose, to write Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And notice what he does with this. It's fascinating how he writes it. He he writes it Jesus, 
the Nazarene. I think what he's doing is he's first showing, look, first of all, he was very condemning. He, he said he didn't want to condemn Jesus, but he doesn't. He, he's a threat to him at first, realizes he's not a threat. Okay, so here's Jesus from Nazarene. Does anything good come out of Nazarene? King of the Jews. So I think he's both taking on both Jesus, that he wasn't much of a threat to him as a king, and he takes on the Jews because you're so foolish that you killed this innocent man. I think that's why he wrote it. But you see in the text that John and us see Jesus differently. We see John stressing the kingship of Jesus Christ all the way to the end. This is how John always presents him to us. As a king, he's a king, he's a king. And who is a king? It's one who's control of all things and certainly he was done. It is not the king the way man thinks kings should rule, but it is a king nonetheless. Because the best king always does what's best for his subjects, right? And it was best that he died. Hallelujah. Verse 20. Tick the Jews off. So don't write this. Verse 20 and 21. But, but Pilate writes it in three languages. Isn't that fascinating? So this was... A decent little writing up there. Most people think it was um, a board covered in gypsum and written in charcoal of some sort or, or blood. I mean, there's all kinds of things that they say that it is, but whatever it was, it was, a, it was some kind of inscription hanging above Jesus that he wrote in three languages. And here's why I think. I think he wrote it in Hebrew because every Jew knew Hebrew. It was the language of the Old Testament and it was the oldest language known to man. Covered a whole span of, of people and civilization. I think he wrote it in Greek because this was the language known to the civilized world. In the language of the literary and educated world, I think they wrote it because of that. And then I think he wrote it in Latin because that's the language of Rome. That's the language of the official men that ruled the world at this time. But, but this too emphasizes Christ's kingship. And I, as I thought about this, I said, Lord, you did all this. You did all this. You, you wrote it so there wasn't a person in the world that couldn't read what Jesus was condemned for. And if you were illiterate, someone there could say, oh, I read Greek, I read Latin, I read Hebrew, that's what it says. I love John bringing this stuff out. You combine this truth with Jesus being the Passover lamb, Man, here he is. It's Friday. Lambs are dying by the thousands in this city. And here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, slaughtered, but he's a king. It's astounding. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He later said in 1 John, my little children, I'm writing these things so you may not sin. And if you sin, we have an advocate with, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is your propitiation for your sins. And not only yours, but all of the world. Hebrews, Latins, Greeks, Gentiles. He saves the world. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, when you travel the world, when you get outside of our little worlds that we live in, and you begin to see he is saving people. Dear brother that's dealing with, dealing with the pastors and the, and the floods of people coming out of Syria. They're flooding into Damascus. 
and Palestine. And they're setting up Christ-preaching churches there because they're, they're saying, if this is what um, Muslim faith is, we don't want any of it. We want to see what this Christian faith is about. Don't listen to the news. Not, there's great things happen. God said, I will have every tribe and tongue before my throne. And he saves brothers and sisters. And we put our faith in that. He is the propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God for us. Look at Romans 3, 5, excuse me, 3.25. Tony took us here last week and what an amazing verse or set of verses that are here. Three chapters, he proves that all are sinners. He proves that the ones everybody loves to point to are sinners and he proves that the ones pointing to the people that they think are sinners are sinners. It's astounding three chapters. And in the end, he says, we're all sinners, verse 23. But we're justified by a gift. The gift of grace through Jesus Christ, verse 24. And then he says this, to whom God displayed. We get the, an old English word out of this called placarded publicly as a propitiation. God placarded him. This prostheomai is the word. It, 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 it absolutely means that God purposefully planned to display something. That's what he did with Jesus. I'm going to display to you the one and only one who you can come to me through. And he did it globally. When there's no internet, no Facebook, no telephones, none of that. He does it in all the languages of the world so everybody will know this was the king of the Jews. It's amazing. We don't think of that. Hey, you two and I had a death sentence put over our head. Look at Colossians chapter 2. You gotta see this. Do you know you have a death sentence? Look at 2.13. You have something written over your head. You were born with this. I was too. Colossians 2.13 says this, when you were dead in your transgressions. Transgressions is a word, another word for sin. It's, it, there's several words that we describe sin. When this is the idea of God set the line in the stand, sand and we just said, I don't care about your line. I'm going across it. We were dead in those sins. Uncircumcised of our flesh, meaning we were just dead and none of this stuff was cut away and taken away from us. That was our position. But he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of our transgressions. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Now look at this, here's your death sentence. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. That's that whole idea that's coming. Paul's taking the picture of the cross. There was a death sentence hanging above Jesus. He said there's a death sentence hanging above you because everyone the Romans killed, they give a death sentence over. We have a death sentence over us. So he says he takes that death sentence that was over us, which was hostile to us. It was taking us to hell and he had taken it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Are those not glorious verses? It's just not a crucifixion. It's not something we let Hollywood make movies of. This is, this is everything we stand on is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every doctrinal statement we write, every truth we stand on is based in this. 
We have nothing without that cross, without that finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to take you to one more text, and I'm pushing it here, but look at Revelations 19. That king of Jews just resonated in me. Uh, it was just that, it just burned in me as I thought about his beauty and who was hanging on that tree and what was being accomplished there for me, Scott, what was happening 2,000 years later. It was the king of kings. And I think sometimes you look at that and you go, oh, poor Jesus. Oh, they shouldn't have done that to him. That's what the world kind of thinks. He's a king, and king always does what's right for his people. And so we see him meek and lowly, and that's what Palm Sunday really identifies to you. He does not come in on a white horse. He does not come in with swords drawn. He comes in humble, riding a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Very humble, very meek. But the king of kings is going to stay that way. He's always humble and meek, but he's coming back. Look at Revelations 19, verse 11. Let me give you just a little bit of context without taking up too much time. We've just finished the Lamb's Supper. Oh, that'll be glorious. All those who know Jesus Christ will eat this meal with the Lord. And then he'll take up his posse. And he'll saddle a horse, and it's white. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. This is the same one who's hanging on a cross with his name above him, the king of the Jews. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are flames of fire, and on his head were many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one else knows except himself. We'll work on that later. He clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's the blood of the saints, blood of those who have been martyred. And his name is called the word of God. Who? John 1.1. 1, 1. We know exactly who this is. There is no doubt who this is. It's Jesus. Saddle up, boys. Verse 14. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linens, white and clean, forgiven is the idea there, are following him on white horses. Maybe better get some lessons going here. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that with it, he would strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod, and he will tread on the winepress in the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, Look at this. He has a name written. It's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Don't mess with him. See, that's what they wanted. That's what they thought they were going to get. But Jesus just turned out to be one who dies for them instead. Don't miss his majesty on the cross. He's in full control. He's hanging there for you and me. And he is a God who, God, he, was, he is the Lord Jesus Christ who God will highly exalt and at his name, at the very mention of his name, every tribe, tongue, nation, all people will fall before him and bow and confess him as Lord. Philippians chapter two. He's powerful. 
When you turn back to John 19, you begin to come back to a savior hanging on the cross that I think, I hope you have a different view of him already this morning. He's taking care of his people. He's doing what his people need. He's a perfect king. The crucifixion was an amazing fulfillment of scriptures. Look at 23 and following the soldiers. You see this, they take his garments, they divide them into four parts, gives you an idea that there's four soldiers that are now finishing off the crucifixion. They've nailed him and they've put nails in his hands and feet. They've put the inscription above him. They've lifted up the cross. They've dropped it into the hole. It seems as though our Lord is completely naked hanging on the cross because this tunic most people believe is an undergarment, one seamless piece that went next to their skin, so often woven of very nice material. And they start to gamble for it. They did this a lot just to figure out who gets what. But they don't even know what they're doing. Because the Lord's still in control. Everything here is a literal fulfillment of the scriptures. And and John's stressing that the soldiers did this because God was fully in control and he's directing all things according to his decree. That's what it says in verse 24. You go, how do you know this, Scott? Look at Psalms 22 with me. David is suffering greatly. He did not know he was writing a clear depiction of the crucifixion. He was just suffering from oppression and people trying to kill him and, and he, he felt the weight of sin and everything on him. And so he writes and God is inspiring David and as I read down through this, it is such a clear depiction of the cross. But to David, he was just writing his anguish and he's crying out to God. In verse one, you find this phrase that we find at the crucifixion recorded in the other gospel accounts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Where are you, God? There is a time when the Lord is hanging on the cross that God separates himself from the Son so he can judge him for the sins and keep his holiness. And Jesus suffers alone for the first time of all of eternity. And that's a hard point for you and I to get our minds around. He's always existed and he's always been one with the Father. And now he is feeling the the suffering, the separation from his Father as God pours the wrath of sin upon his Son for you and I. And he cries out and says, my God, you've left me. All his suffering fully felt in his humanity, mingled with his deity, understanding that God was in control. He cries these out. Oh my God, verse two, I cry out by day, and you do not answer me. By night, I have no rest. Remember, everything went black for a while. And yet, you are holy. This is a thousand years before the cross of Christ. And you are enthroned upon the praise of Israel, still full trust in God. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But here, look how he feels. But I am a worm. I'm not a man. I'm reproached of men. I'm the reproach of men. I'm despised by the people. This is where that song comes that we sing. He was despised and rejected. All those who see me stare at me. He, remember, he didn't minister a lot in Jerusalem. He prepared that for his death. And so, they, they, who is this one that's coming as they sing Hosanna to him? 
coming in and they're saying, and little boys carrying their lambs for sacrifice and they're headed for temple. And they're going, Daddy, why is that man on that cross? What did he do? And they got their lamb in tow with them. Can you imagine this? He's a wicked man, son. They're murderers and thieves, and that guy made himself out to be God. See, they're sneering, their lips, their heads are wagging. Commit yourself to the Lord, and he will deliver you. This is Jesus' prayer. He's, remember, he trusted when reviled. He did not revile and turn with threat. He did not threat, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rights. Just leave 1 Peter chapter 2, 23, I think. Verse 9. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You put me, you placed me, Spirit of God, in the womb of, of Mary. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast he was raised like a man. He was raised as a human so he would suffer and know and he would be our advocate. He would be our representation. Verse 10, upon you I was cast from birth and you have been my God in my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help me. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They're open wide their mouth at me and and ravening and roaring like lions. You can just see this. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? You see, this is, this is so prophetic here. Verse 14, you start to see the suffering of Christ. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. You can't hang by nails and your tenants not give out. My heart is like wax. It melts within me. Oxygen levels begin to drop. Hearts working hard to push blood. 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to his jaw. That's why he needs that drink before he cries out. We'll talk about that in a second. And he lay me down in the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me. The band of evils have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That never happened to David. But David felt something like this. He's praying this out in a prophetic psalm. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Wow. When, when John in our text says, look, this is a fulfillment of all that the scriptures say, you begin to realize it is so detailed. It's detailed. And then quickly, look at, I want to I highlight this and then we'll close with its finish and then move right into communion with this. It's a perfect passage. There's women standing at the cross. The God-man is intertwined with those he created in love. That's the thought that just came out as I studied this. The God-man's intertwined. He loves these people that he created. And there's compassion and there's beauty in this passage. And they're standing there. Here's his mother and his mother's sister and Caiaphas' wife and Mary Magdalene, the former demonic woman, the prostitute, this woman that was disregarded as nothing less than anything. And Jesus saved her. They're all there at the cross. And it's, isn't it interesting that the women seem to be the last ones at the cross and the first ones to the tomb? We, we see our Lord honor the lowest. Women were just above pagans and outsiders. The Lord comes to the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He takes women and exalts them and shows that they have first place with him. 
And here's this touching, one of the most touching moments of the crucifixion. The son of God's hanging on the cross. He's dying for those he loves. He's full of compassion. He sees his earthly mother. He sees his women. And, and, and don't miss this. Mark this deep, wide, beautiful sympathy and affection that the Lord has in this moment here. Mark the high honor the Lord gives to the fifth command as he honors his, worthly, his, his earthly mother. He honors her. Jesus, the giver of both life, physical life and spiritual life, once again is showing his glory as a God-man position. He's always thinking of others. He's always in complete control. Jesus lives out his instructions. The Bible says, have the same attitude in, in yourself. Philippians 5, I mean, excuse me, 2, verse 5. But in verse 4, he says, don't look on your own personal interests. Jesus looks it out and says, look, there's my mom. And he turns to John, which we know John won't identify himself. It's, this, it's a disciple he loves, and he says, look, John, there's mom. Mom, there's John. You go, Where's the rest of the family? Most likely Joseph's dead. He's nowhere around. John 7 verse 5 says his brothers aren't even believing yet. John, take care of my mother. Mom, go with John. John doesn't need Mary. Mary needs John. Don't exalt her. She's not, she would not want that. She needed somebody to take care of her. And Jesus, this compassionate Savior, sees this. This is John, take her. And the Bible instructs us that the language here, particularly original, says that he took her and he stayed with her. This is it. He, this is it. He take responsibility, final responsibility of this. This is a covenant. This is almost like they did in the Old Testament. And John obeyed it. And he obeyed that the Bible says, love one another, and John did this. Finally, look at our last thought. The greatest three words a believer could ever hear. I promise you, these are the greatest words. It is finished. See, do you, do you see the importance of that? You see how important it is that, that the Lord finishes this? No, notice what's happening. He's, he's at the end of his life here, he's, but he's in full control. Verse 28, Jesus knowing that all things have already been accomplished. The wrath has been poured out on him. He's, he's now taken and become the propitiation, the satisfactory payment. He's appeased the wrath of God. But he's been hanging there for a while. It's, this is a fascinating text. Earlier they offered him um, a, a, a concoction that would deaden the pain. They gave it to him. It was a way to show that they were sympathetic in some way. And the other accounts prove that Jesus rejects that, that narcotic. He doesn't take it. And, and, and simple, he just, he's going to take on the full wrath. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have something to kind of, well, ease the pain. I'm going to take everything the Father has. This is a different, it's a completely different jar of wine. It's a, it's a sour wine. It's, it's there just to wet the palate. And our Lord sees it and he asked for it. He asked for, for, for something. I'm thirsty. And they put it on this hyssop and they put it up to his mouth. And, and, and don't make, read more of this. He is just merely wetting his vocal cords so he can cry out these last words to you and to me. It's finished. It's done. No more lambs. 
No more coming to me through men. I am the final priest. I am the final prophet. I am the king of kings. I am the truth, the way, and the life. Don't try to get to the Father any other way but me. I've done it now. You don't have to look for another. It's done. See, this is why we make this strong stand. It's finished, it's finished, it's finished. It's done. We believe in Jesus alone. Verse after verse, and time has eluded us, but verse after verse tells us that through his blood, Hebrews 9, 12, we enter the holy place once and for all, the Bible says. His blood was far greater than any goat or bull. Hebrews 10, when he had done this, he offered sacrifice for sin. At one time, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's over. Hebrews 2, 14, he was made like us, like flesh, so he would become a merciful, faithful high priest in pertaining to all things to make propitiation for sins. And this is love that the Son made provision for us, John 4.10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, lest you could boast in some way. For he is our workmanship, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Daniel 9, looking to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, said, to the finished transgression, to, to make end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, that is what Jesus meant when he hung on the cross and said it is finished. And Jesus was given full authority over his life. And don't think he wasn't in control here. It's fascinating. Remember he said in John 10, verse 18, no one takes my life, I lay it down. I take it up on my own authority. And Luke records the beautiful, there's one more set of words that are given here. Luke reports them. He says it is finished. Luke chapter 23, verse 45 says, the veil ripped in two. The veil that was probably four inches of material thick when the Romans knocked down the temple in, in 70 AD, they tried to hook horses up to rip it and they could not do it. It's ripped in two. Dead bodies are coming out of the grave. Darkness is around. Earthquakes are happening. And, and everything's being shaken. And then Jesus, after he says it's finished, says this in full control. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. They didn't kill him. He died. I'm done. And the Bible says, in some of the recordings, he bowed his head. I'm done. That's our salvation. That's why we're so passionate about this. Don't add to it. Don't think that you're better than somebody else. You needed this. You needed him to say, it's finished for you. Father, what a staggering passage of scripture. We just, we get overwhelmed to think that our Lord hung there, Lord. He knew us, Lord. He knew there was no other way. He knew that nobody, very few, even, even the disciples at that point hadn't put it all together because the Spirit of God had not fallen upon him yet what he was doing. But in full control, he, he says, it's finished. It's done. And he gives up his spirit, Lord. He gives it up. Not somebody taking his spirit from him. He gives it up. And he bows his head. Lord, thank you, Jesus. We, we want to honor you now in communion. We want to hold that bread and that cup in our hands and have a right view of it. 
We want to remember you this morning, Lord. So may our worship and communion be just as pure as our singing and our preaching, Lord, because it's an act of worship to you. Hear us as we sing to you in Jesus' name.